Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. I had a question right here at the end of the last talk about how to keep focused on the light and not thinking about the absence of the light in the from the uh, poem prayer from St. John Henry Newman. You know, um, it's interesting that, and I know we're going to get a talk about how to overcome or escape from this, you know, when Aquinas talks about assuaging sorrow, not necessarily counter to Achady in particular, it's interesting that he doesn't mention specifically religious things to do. Right? Mentions pleasure. He mentions tears. Right? Tears are the one way in which sorrow is, is transitive, in which you can dispel it. Right? Uh, he mentions friendship. Uh, both because sorrow is the, the term that gets it gets translated in English as depression. I was like, is that really the word? It's, it's aggravare, which we think of as aggravate or irritate, but aggravare is also it's a way down. And friendships lessen the weight. They also teach us that we're loved, which is a counter to sadness. Taking baths and getting good sleep, he mentions. Right? Just, just sometimes you're sad because you're so worn down, right? And you're not taking care of the body. The other thing he mentioned, which links into what I'm going to do now, is contemplation of truth. Contemplation of truth is a counter to sorrow. Because in the contemplation of truth, there is no sorrow. In We can be contemplating sad things, right? But contemplation itself, insofar as it is of what is truthful, also has an element of pleasure to us. To it. So when Aquinas talks about the beautiful, in the opening of the Summa, when he's talking about the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity, some, one of his most extensive discussions of beauty comes in talking about Christ as species or as form, as beauty. He says there that even an accurate representation of something that's ugly can give us pleasure because it's an accurate representation, right? which is Pretty interesting. I would also say that the contemplation of truth, contemplation of the good, contemplation of the beautiful, is a counter to sorrow. It's a counter to this, this the avaricious tentacles, right? It's a counter to want to pull everything into me. Um, a friend of mine who's a painter, Japanese-American painter, contemporary painter, really interesting, uh, Makoto Fujimura, 
not a Catholic, but he's heavily influenced by Catholic authors, Maritain. He was actually on, under President Bush, he was on the Commission on the Arts and got to know really well my Notre Dame mentor, Ralph McInerney. So he has, he writes these little short essays that he posts and then so they're published and he, uh, McInerney was a great Thomist philosopher and just a remarkable, remarkable individual, uh, but also wrote fiction and wrote what became a TV series, the Father Dowling series. And so Mako has a, that, that commission on the arts went to China to talk about art. And he's got a little essay that he wrote called Going to China with Father Dowling, where he spent the whole time trying to learn about Aquinas and Maritain and others from Ralph McInerney. And he, he gets a lot of people, he does contemporary abstract art, but with suffused with really interesting, subtle Christian themes. And so he gets asked a lot by people, how do I understand art, particularly modern art? And the first thing he says is, you need to think etymologically about understand, and you need to shift the words around, the parts of that word around. You need to stand under art in order to appreciate it. Understand is the mode of the detached critic, right? Is how he's thinking of it there. Standing under something is a way of getting yourself out of the way and being receptive. Right? I think our, as I said this morning with social media, uh, and it, there are lots of good things about social media. I mean, I use my phones, I use my screens, but but there's certain potential big problems with this. I think the other problem connected to this is our, we have a kind of crisis of visual culture. And I think there's a simple way to talk about, once I get into some of these images, I'll add a second way. The easiest way to talk about this is that our visual culture is idolatrous. I don't mean by that that we're worshiping golden calves, although there may be things pretty close to that uh, that substitute for it in our culture. I mean by that, that and here I'm borrowing from a contemporary French Catholic philosopher, Jean-Luc Marion, who talks about the difference between the idol and the icon. And of course, the idol and the icon cannot be understood apart from a theological and religious context, right, where idol is worshiping images uh, in place of God. And the icon, as this develops, is a way of orienting ourselves through images to God. But these have broader references in our culture. The idol is a relationship to an image where it presents itself Here's a technical phrase. It's actually cl pretty clear for a French philosopher whom I'm quoting. It's not often all that clear. The idol presents itself as proportionate to the expectation of our desire. What do I mean by that? Images that are idols, we have a consumer relationship to. In a consumer relationship, which can be normal and healthy, but problematic if expanded to fundamental human interaction with others in the world. In a consumer relationship, I know what I want, and I purchase the product. And it either meets or fails to meet the desires 
that I had when I went into the commercial purchasing, right? If it doesn't meet those expectations, it gets a bunch of bad reviews on Amazon. If it meets it, people buy it. If you expand this to our relationship to images generally, it means that when I'm looking at images, I get what I want. The image is proportionate to my antecedent desires. The image does not, and we don't want it to question or criticize or transform the desires we bring to the image. We want the image simply to satisfy those desires. That's an idolatrous relationship to images. The icon, also, the other thing about an idolatrous relationship is that I'm at a, I'm in a safe position to the image. Right? I can manipulate it. It doesn't do anything to me. The one thing the idol doesn't do is look back at me. The icon looks back at me. And one of the most important things about certain kinds of icons is that I allow myself to be looked at by the saint or person of the Trinity who is looking at me. It's also true of an icon that particularly if my soul is disordered, the icon can, if I continue to engage it, accuse, criticize, question, and if I allow it to work and I go away and change my practices and habits, it can transform me. Right, there are all sorts of themes in the Old Testament about how we will become like the images that we ponder. I think this is, this is where art can play a role in transforming us from idolatrous consumers of images to people who have a different relationship. Now, some images can't help but be idolatrous because of their content, right? Other images can transform us if we let them. I want to look at this great, a few images from this great work of art. It's black and white. It's, it's modern in its style. Although, as you'll be able to see, Georges Rouault, this great French Catholic painter, trained early in his career in stained glass, and some of that stays with these images. This was a series of images that he worked on over about a 20-year period and then finally was published in, in the mid-20th century. Uh, Rouault was a good friend of Jacques and Raisa Maritain after their conversion. Uh, and, um, and I think the, the, uh, most of what Maritain learned about modern art that he could reconcile with Catholic tradition, he learned from Georges Rouault. Very modern in his style, but deeply traditional in his content. There's an interesting question here about 
about art and theology, um, which is how do you, in contemporary media, and I don't mean media, the news, but media, just different means or modes of communication. How do you communicate traditional teachings and how do you communicate them, especially to a culture that thinks it already knows what those are and has rejected them? Right, art, um, art can be bad in lots of ways, but one of the ways it can be bad is by trying to be um, dictatorial or too didactic. Right? Um, if you think about the, this is completely apart from theology, if you think about the, if any of you know the original Matrix series of films, uh, the first one was really interesting and had all these philosophical elements in it. And then they started reading their press about how philosophical they are. And in the second and the third one, they put all these really long philosophical speeches and their worst films because of it, right? It's also the case that most of contemporary Christian art is bad. It's just bad art, right? Everything's predictable. The characters are predictable. The plot's predictable. And you're just bored because they're preaching at you. And it's not good preaching. Right? Art operates by indirection at its best. Right? Its, its tools are surprise and wonder. And if you don't feel surprise and wonder, it's not good art. Christian art especially ought to be indirect and use the tools of surprise and wonder. Sometimes it also has to, we think of, of certain strains of modern art as just being against conventional society, right? Where the artist is always in a protest mode. I think there are certain reasons as to why it's developed that way. And certainly if, you're, um, if your sole or primary motive is just to offend you're probably not really doing art. But a good artist may have to offend in order to communicate deeper truths to which our souls have become oblivious. If our relationship to images in the modern world is increasingly idolatrous, then artists who are serious about what they're trying to communicate are going to have to try and teach us how not to be idolaters. But we gotta first recognize that we are idolaters. I think Rouleau's doing this magnificently in this Miserere series, which comes from Psalm 51, right? Which we pray every Friday morning in the Catholic liturgy. Right? Um, a, a great psalm of, of penance, a great psalm of recognition of our own sinfulness before God and of asking for mercy. Rouault is one of the great anti-progressives, despite the fact that he's very modern in his style. He's one of the great anti-progressives of the early 20th century. He lived through the First World War. If you needed to an argument for the end of liberalism, which we talk a lot about today, the First World War was it for Western Europe. The idea that progress, reason, and science 
were going to push us forward in this way where everything was going to get better and better every day in every way was blown apart by the First World War. Everyone thought it was going to be short, lasted a long time. The battle in the trenches was just brutal. And the modern weaponry of technology, which made it possible, was seen as a blight rather than the source of the promise of human liberation and happiness. Just a blight across and despair across Europe at the end of the First World War. Rouault is attempting to craft images that will speak to that devastated, humiliated culture and to try to remind that culture of certain things that it had forgotten. Especially, I think, Rouault is concerned with human sorrow writ large, human misery. The miserere have mercy, right, in the imperative form addressed to God in the psalm, but also an indication of the misery of the human condition. Let's go through a few of these images. I'm going to start and then come back. Okay, this one. Uh, and the texts are all in French, so that may or may not help you. There's a triptych here. of images. This one says, are we not all convicts or sinners? Look at that face. Supposing ourselves kings. Is that a king you want to go to the into battle with? Or no, it's a swollen, arrogant, distorted image of royalty. Are we not all kings supposing our, are we not all convicts supposing ourselves kings? Who does not wear a mask? This is Rouault at the opening of this series of images addressing us as viewers. It's influenced by the French poet Baudelaire who influenced T.S. Eliot. There's a line at the end of the first section of Eliot's Wasteland where he quotes Baudelaire. And I'm, I'm, my French accent's really bad, so I'll just translate it into English. You hypocrite reader, my likeness, my friend. Trying to keep the reader from thinking, I have a detached, safe distance from what this work is trying to communicate to me. Rose doing the same thing. Here, it's the hypocrite spectator, the hypocrite viewer. Are we not all convicts, supposing ourselves kings, who does not wear a mask? The line from Eliot's earlier poem, G. Alfred Prufrock, there will be time, there will be time to create a face to meet the faces that you meet. Right? The construction of images of ourselves to hide what we truly are, from others, right? Who does not wear a mask? We know we have disordered souls, but we suppose ourselves kings in our vanity and fantasy. And then to others, we wear masks to hide ourselves. Pascal, great French thinker, also influenced uh, Rouault, said at one point, we hide and disguise ourselves from ourselves, right? 
this is partly why we can't get at our sorrow and how we ought to respond to it. It would be much better to begin as this character does. Simple man with a simple child. Take refuge in your heart, you vagabond of misfortune. Remember, mercy is about sorrow over the misfortune of others. Take refuge in your heart, you vagabond of misfortune. Much better to be this ordinary soul who recognizes that he's lost than the person who thinks he's a king when in fact he's nothing of the sort. Notice, though, that this is preceded by two images of Christ. Jesus despised, always flagellated, always beaten. Notice the posture of Christ and the posture of the man. Similar, right? Head bent. Genesis tells us that we're created in the image and likeness of God. The incarnation shows us God taking on our image. Not just human flesh, the human soul, but taking on our image at its most, at its greatest deficit, its greatest sense of loss. It's coming close to the experience of despair, right? Christ takes on the image of the vagabond of misfortune. For much of the first half of the Miserere, we have single images of Christ and a bunch of images of ordinary human beings. There are 58 images here. We're not going to be able to go slowly through all of them. You're glad to know because you'll be here till like midnight. Okay. Let me go through a few more, skip through a few more here. We have images of upper class women who believe, because of their class status, that they have a place reserved in heaven. Again, are we not sinners supposing ourselves royalty? Rowe has an extensive critique of the justice system, which he thought was geared not to help those who needed help. The condemned man is led away, while his lawyer, in confusing phrases, says he doesn't know anything about what's going on. If we'd gone through all those, we would have seen various conditions of, of loss and isolation, human beings. Here we have a phrase, like part of a sentence, under a Jesus on the cross, completely forgotten. Oublié pas, French. Right? I think that sous, that under, is supposed to refer to every image we've seen so far. All of that is occurring, both humble people who are aware of their deprivation and the proud and the vain. All of that is going on under Jesus on the cross, but what? Completely forgotten. Right? This is the thing the modern West has forgotten. Not just God, but Christ on the cross. Christ as the suffering servant. Though he was mistreated and oppressed, he opened not his mouth. Notice the posture again. 
All right. Look at this. I love this. I wish we had more time. The way of solitude or of loneliness. Notice the kind of Van Gogh-like way in which you have certain perspective, but then it seems like the, the, the passageway is kind of tilting in, the way those paranoid Van Gogh rooms do when you're looking at them. There are tiers of things. This is from Virgil's Aeneid, the line. right When Virgil goes to the underworld and sees the images already there of the destruction of Troy. There are tears of things that touch the human heart, what Virgil writes. Remember tears, right? Misfortune and tears. Rose attempting, right? I mean, one of the problems with deprivation, affectless experience, and loss and horror is that it can gradually deprive us of the ability to feel. We become jaded, right? Too much deprivation, too much pain can numb us and can detach us from our own sorrow. Right? Rose attempting to bring his audience back in touch with their sorrow, with their misery. This looks like a scene from, except for the cross in the middle, like a scene from a kind of bad horror film or something, right? You got a bunch of skulls in a tomb. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Sing matins, right? The liturgy, the morning, the day is renewed. See, so just being ironic. How could the day be renewed? Christ's baptism, love one another. I'm going to go back to that scene in a moment. This is the first scene where all those isolated prints of individual human beings and Christ come together. First time. Lord, it is you. I recognize you. A melding, I think, of two post-resurrection scenes with the hand leaning in. I recognize you. Looks like Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, encountering the resurrected Christ. It's also reminiscent of the disciples at Emmaus because of the recognition. Come to recognize him. Everything is happening under a Christ on the cross, completely forgotten. Yet there's still the possibility of recognizing Christ, who it seems is passing along the way, and we encounter him, perhaps like on the road to Emmaus. How could it be that this is a scene that gives the promise of new life and then gives rise to this claim, the day is renewed. I think that Rouault thinks, as many theologians and philosophers have, that this construction of masks that we're habitually doing to present something to others and to hide ourselves from ourselves 
is ultimately rooted in a fear of death and unwillingness to recognize our own mortality. Rouleau does not think, though, like some 20th century philosophers, that the key thing, like Heidegger, is to recognize our lives as being toward death, or that we can make death into a friend, as philosophers like Montaigne suggest. Death is, for Rouleau, as it was for Paul, the last enemy to be destroyed. Right? But Rouleau wants to go beneath the disorder of our society, beneath our miseries, beneath our sorrow, to this fear of our own mortality. What we find as we face our death is that there's someone there waiting for us. Someone who counted himself as nothing to be obedient unto death and welcomed suffering and death, not out of despair, not out of violence, right? He was mistreated, but opened not his mouth, but as a way of taking the evil and the misery into and onto himself and offering hope, offering redemption. This is the only way for Rouleau that we can actually face our own mortality with hope, without despair. One of the really interesting themes in this series is Veronica. Right? And Veronica, with her tender linen, passes along the way, along the road. What's the legend of Veronica? What do we know about Veronica? Yeah. My name is Veronica, so I grew up hearing this all my life. Um, Veronica, she, she, when Jesus was walking with the cross, how she came with her veil, she took off her veil, and she walked his face clean with blood. Yes, and the image, and the image remains stays on the veil. Veronica's name means what etymologically? True image. true image, right? The vera icona, the true image. All right, here's the other problem with our visual culture. The first, and this is connected to that first, is the idolatry of the image. The second is, I'm not going to do too much philosophy because it's right after lunch, so we shouldn't do too much philosophy right after lunch. There's this problem in modern philosophy where philosophers are wondering, I have ideas in my head and images. How do I know those accurately reflect what's out there in the world? Descartes, Locke, Hume, Barclay, they're all concerned about this. In modern culture, this becomes a claim that images only reflect other images. In fact, you can find this in films. You find this in the famous Orson Welles film from the 40s, The Lady from Shanghai, where he goes into one of these fun house of mirrors and he can't find his way out because everywhere he turns, he just sees images. Interestingly, just images of himself, right? The despair of modernity has something to do with the idea that all we get is a bunch of images that refer only to other images. We never get to an original. We never get to what's real, right? Why are we so obsessed with reality TV? We want the real thing the authentic thing that's not a construct. I think the first reality TV show way back when was an MTV show called The Real World, right? And then they started promoting on the web where you could get the real story behind the real world, okay? A constant deferral of what's real 
thinking that everything is just constructed, right? This is a suspicion we have about our media culture, about our sales culture, about our political culture. It's just spin. It's fake news. The suspicion that we're always being sold something and that images only refer to images and we can't get to the authentic, the real, the really real. But Veronica's the true image. Let's go further down here. That's a great... Okay, here we have... These are supposed to be variations on Veronica's veil on the wall. The De Profundis. Back on the wall. Think about what's going on with images here. You have an image, Veronica's veil, on the wall. Within an image that's an image of the veil. That's an image of Christ, who Colossians tells us is the image of the invisible God. An image within an image of an image of an image, that's the image of the invisible God. He gives lots of different images to this veil. Some of them don't look like it's the crucified Lord. And then we end, let me go to the end, back up a little bit. Is that a beautiful image? It's Christ, right? By his wounds you are healed. It's in one sense an ugly image, right? It's almost an image from a horror story. But it's by his wounds you are healed. It's a beautiful image if it's an accurate depiction of the horrors that Christ endured out of love. It's again the veil. How is Veronica the true image? Well, it's obviously the veil that's the true image. Rowe thinks that at the root of these crises of the visible is a problem with us and our culture. It's not just a philosophical problem of how do I get out of my head and into the world. It's the problem of our habit of constructing idolatrous images of ourselves that hide ourselves from others and from our very selves. Rowe, by presenting this misery, this sorrow, this suffering, is attempting, is inviting us with him in this series of images to drop those masks and recognize our disorder and recognize our penchant for constructing images that keep us from genuine self-knowledge. What if along the path of our lives we encounter a face? We encounter a face and a person who, as the Samaritan woman says, told her everything about herself, everything she ever did. What if we encounter someone who knows us better 
than we know ourselves and knows much better than we do all of our defense strategies, all of our ways of constructing images of ourselves to hide our own sinfulness, our own sorrow, our own sense of loss from ourselves and from others. And does so perhaps accusingly at some level, but ultimately because the accusation leads to mercy and leads to redemption. That's how you solve the problem of the visible for Ruel. That's how Veronica's veil is the true image. Because the true image is the image of the suffering servant who is way ahead of us down the road as we continue to struggle with our own sorrows, with our own suffering, with our own guilt, and with our own mortality. Veronica's there waiting with an image that gives us self-knowledge. And as painful as those realizations may be, it's all ordered to mercy toward us and toward others. I think Rose also saying that this is the task of the Christian artist. The Christian artist presents images aware that the audience is not and I, there's almost no one in the audience who is an ideal viewer of these images because of our personal disorders and because of the disorders in our visible culture where we're used to standing back and being critics of images or manipulating images to satisfy our desires. The artist must invert that so that the artist can then allow us to have an iconic relationship to images where the images look at us and know us better than we know ourselves and embrace our sorrows so that we can know the mercy of God. Thanks. <laughs> Questions? Yeah. I noticed that the uh, the Ruo's work here is black and white, whereas some of his other paintings are quite colorful. And, yeah, yeah. So, what's his uh, what's his intent in presenting the the yeah. uh, the uh, all of this in the which? Really well, I think it's it's partly he was a great printmaker, and so the 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 Miserere prints and there. I mean, if you actually get. In, the, in a rightly lit room to stand in front of this series from one of the original prints that he did, the black and white is just astonishing. Um, so I think he was, he was experimenting with a certain form of modern printmaking here. I think he also thought that the black and white was in a way appropriate to the mood of this, which is a, it's a kind of Good Friday mood, right? It's a Good Friday mood. Um, but that doesn't mean that he thought that was the only or the primary way in which you present the Christian message, as you can see from these others, from this. I mean, here you get, you know, one of the things that happens in, in 20th century art is that the human figure gets, first of all, dismembered by cubism, right, where you put it up into shapes, and then it just disappears. And the two great mainstream 20th century artists who keep the focus on the human figure are Rouault and Chagall the greatest Jewish painter and the greatest Christian painter of the first half of the 20th century. 
They keep their focus on the human figure, which Maritan, Rose's good friend, called the natural sacrament, the human face in particular, the natural sacrament. The human face is uh, appropriate to a rational animal, and it also reflects the divine. So even in all those other images, you get slight distortions. He's not trying to do um, Renaissance uh, technical scientific accuracy, but it, he is trying to present the human condition in this way. You get these really remarkable um, uh, landscapes as well. This was, the, I think, the first painting that the Vatican purchased to put in its modern collection, uh, Autumn Nazareth which is just a beautiful, you, if you, if, with really good paintings, you need to just be still in front of them for a time. You know, we're all like the Griswold family when they go to uh, a National Lampoon European vacation where they go through the Louvre and it's like 10 seconds in front of, of everything. It's where they, they speed it up, speed up the track in that part of the movie. Um, we need to do the opposite. We need to just stand under a, this uh, Mako Fujimura, the Japanese Christian uh, painter I mentioned earlier, says that when he goes to a museum, he just sits for 10 minutes before looking at anything. Or maybe picks a painting and sits in front of it for 10 minutes just to get his spirit. It's like we, we need to be quiet before we can pray. right? We need to have a period where you let go of things and that's not actually prayer, although it, it, everything can be prayer, of course, but it disposes to prayer. Something like this goes on with good art. You need to get everything else, and you need to get specifically yourself out of the way and be attentive in a way that the art, that you just take it in. This is, this, this is a gorgeous, gorgeous painting. Um, and you can see Christ not exactly at the center. We don't have old-fashioned precise perspective here, but you can see that the halo there is, picks up uh, some of the yellow around the sun and also seems to be present in the faces of the people in the, in the foreground, three groups of two, but not, not Renaissance accuracy, right? Uh, but there's a warmth and a translucence to this. And notice the harmony of the natural and the human as well. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Is there a, another hand somewhere? Other, yeah. Thanks for this. This is wonderful to see Ruol's uh, painting and understanding its context. In many ways, it, his style comes out of his um, the art context. Yeah. But this would have been seen as very surprising. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder your thoughts on our own context now, where this may not be a surprise. Uh -huh. um, how does the artist avoid being didactic and still inspire wonders? Yeah. I think it's it's really hard to predict. I mean, I you know I think you can. I think it's um, it's hard to predict what um, what's going to work, right? It's just you can't. I mean, there are there are certain broad principles about art and how it works, but 
The idea that you can figure out in the abstract for all time exactly how art's going to work, uh, especially now, right? Um, and I, I like artists who, I mean, I like very traditional church buildings and so forth, right? But, I, but if we're in the world of art, I like artists who do something new that connects up with deep human questions and truths. Um, I think this is probably more possible, at least in a way of communicating to the rest of us in film, because film's really the only place, and it's less, it happens less than it used to, where you have high and popular art sort of coming together. Um, we were talking at lunch about a jazz music class. That was a period in American history where high and popular came together. Film still does this a little bit. Uh, I don't know where else it happens in our culture. Right? It's a real, it's a real problem that we have the fine arts where the really sophisticated people go, and and go to museums, and then the rest of us are just left with entertainment. Um, probably con in contemporary stuff, um, really well done TV series are even better than film. I mean, um, uh, there've been a lot of them over the past ten to fifteen years where you've got really creative stuff going on that's better than most of the stuff that's going on in film. Uh, and that where high and low kind of come together. Uh, I think that's one, that's important, is that high and low come together, right? So that we're elevated by it, rather than it being mirrored. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. And there's nothing wrong, I love to watch games, I love to watch sports, I love to watch TV shows, I love to watch all sorts of things, much of which I consider just entertainment. Even though there, there are there's there are always implicit assumptions about the narratives that we're getting, right? What's possible? What's not? What is the narrative suggesting we should laugh at? What's what what can't we laugh at? Those are all important things, but it's also important to have arenas where high and low come together, right? Um, you know, I, I mean, in probably the closest to Rouault is um, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Right, which I think is, um, I've got a very mixed judgment of that film. Um, uh, the first R-rated uh, religious film, uh, Mel Gibson said that what he wanted to present was a moving Caravaggio, and that opening scene in the garden looks like a moving Caravaggio. Also other really beautiful scenes, the scene where where he falls and Mary sees him and Mary has a flashback to him falling as a child. It's just beautiful. And she rushes up to him and he stands up and says, I make the whole, I make all things new. It's a really beautiful scene. The, um, the scene at the, for the end, this thing about looking at the audience, right? Breaking the plane as they call it. When a character looks directly at the audience, this has been so overused in things like the office that we're used to it, right? Where every 30 seconds, Jim is looking at us. Aren't these other people idiots, right? Um, but breaking the plane, Mary does this in, in The Passion when she's holding the dead body of Jesus and her head slowly turns and looks directly at us as if to say, what does this have to do with you, right? It's all great. I think there's way too much direct depiction of violence. 
Not because Rene Girard, who knows a thing or two about violence, said, you know, these were the two worst punishments the Romans could inflict on, uh, on the accused and condemned, flogging and then crucifixion. But the problem is that if you show explicit beating for too long, we become desensitized. I actually wrote a piece after that came out, and Mel had done you know, a bunch of things with M. Night Shyamalan previously. This was back when M. Night Shyamalan was still making watchable movies. Um, <laughs> but I thought Mel should have made the movie and then given it to M. Night to edit. Because M. Night's a great editor. And M. Night is much more about suspense than he is about horror and direct depiction of violence. I thought that film could have had a lot more indirect depiction where the imagination is pulled out to construct for itself the pain and suffering that's going on. Because over time, the imagination gets overwhelmed. And I think that was the big flaw in that film. And it's not surprising that, would ha it, that from Mel Gibson, it would have both those strengths and those precise weaknesses. Right? Uh, it was surprising. right? I remember being overwhelmed by it when I first saw it. And he was trying to do something really different. Right? And he was also trying to accuse his audience of having lost what the core of the life of Christ was about. And he was right about that. So he was trying to do something like what Rouault was doing. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much. This is awesome. Uh, I'm thinking, especially your, your point about mask, thinking of mask and image. Humorous, but also profound. Uh, the, the image of Rodriguez Vale, which is within an, within an image, it's an image of an image. Who is the image? Of, yeah. Of, of the yeah. God. Um, there's something veiled about reality. You know that it seems that it's going to be difficult for us. Well, that we, we can't get beyond veils. Right. We we see through a glass darkly. Yeah. Um, and I don't really know where I'm going with this, but there's this, there's that other thing I've been thinking about. Um, so there's a, a line from Oscar Wilde, you can trust a man who wears masks, uh -huh. a mask. Yeah. I think Dylan repeats it to Bob Dylan. Yeah. And thinking about some crazy rock and rollers like David Bowie, for example, who, you know, dresses like an androgynous alien. Um, Ziggy. Ziggy, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but to say some interesting things. Yes. That he couldn't say. Or that no one would listen to him if he just said if he was David Bowie. Yeah. Or that uh, there's Buckethead, a great guitarist for Guns N' Roses. <laughs> if he never wore a KFC bucket on his head, <laughs> no one would know him. Um, but now people do know him. Yeah. And uh, he, he has an audience. Yeah. And you know, he can say something, he can do something. Yes. He's wearing a mask. Yes. A bucket, a very strange mask. Um, so there's just this interesting tension yeah. I find um, with reality, but also with with art. Yeah. That, um, that by assuming, and I guess you can even just see this in theater. You know, but by assuming a mask or assuming a character, you're able to say something uh, and, and actually reveal something true yeah. about our condition. You couldn't say if you weren't. Right. That's yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this is the distinctive Catholic contribution to. Christian culture, right? One of them. 
but but especially to culture, to Western culture, is the the recognition of uh, the complexity, but the inevitability of images, right? That that and and that ultimately, what the incarnation teaches us is that the the, the human body is good, right? Uh, that creation reflects God. Uh, we need. We delight in images, as Aristotle says, right? We delight in imitation. We delight in metaphors because we notice similarities in dissimilar things. But that's the note of surprise in the metaphor, right? So it's the juxtaposition. Humor is about seeing things from different perspectives and laughing at it, right? It looks funny from that perspective. And it didn't when seen straight on, right? Good art is about seeing something being thrown into position where you're momentarily disoriented and then you see it. So much of art becomes just about disorientation and then it's a dead end. That doesn't mean that art should just directly present, right? It's got to, it's got to work through mass. It's got to work indirectly and it's got to jar our sense of perception in such a way that we see things differently. Good comedy works that way. Good tragedy works that way, right? Yeah, but that we are naturally image makers, the question is how do we do that in a healthy and ultimately holy way, and how do we not? How do we avoid doing it in ways that are incompatible? Yeah, right here. Yeah. You have said something about being able to just stand in front of art yes. and just appreciate it, right? That would require a, not a certain degree, a great degree of interior silence yes yes <laughs> we'll be hearing more about that in a few minutes later but yes which is something that persons such as myself lack i'm just going to be very honest so how then can we cultivate a certain sense of interior silence this is important for prayer as you noted it's also important for being able to appreciate a good book of art yeah so like what would you say to develop that kind of interior silence so that we could actually be in front of art you just got to do it. I mean, you just got to, you, 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 in a sense, just have to put everything away and, and learn to be silent. And it, it requires real discipline from us because when all the old people in this room were kids, we didn't have, and, and we got sent to our room or punished or something. We didn't, there was nothing there. I mean, we didn't have this stuff that we take with us, right? I mean, it's just you in your room. And, um, and you get bored and maybe you think you shouldn't do something that, that led you to be locked in your room. But you, we just had silence enforced upon us at, at, uh, at regular intervals. And it's sad in a way that we have to work at it now. Because this is not, sitting alone on one of these things is not, it's not even exterior silence, let alone interior silence, Right. The, the first thing you have to do is to, it's, it takes asceticism, right? This is it. We need ascetical practices with respect to all of our images and with respect to screens. And if we don't develop habits of self-denial there, these things will control our lives and at a minimum make our lives a lot more shallow than they would other be. And we can lose a sense of the desires that are really deepest in our soul. If we're given bad diet of images constantly, we will be miserable 
But we will, in some sense, have lost touch with the deeper desire that point to things that would satisfy us and help us escape from our misery. That's the real danger, right? That goes back to this morning's talk where um, uh, where Akchadia amputates the voice, which expresses the inner desire. Right? If you don't have a certain asceticism with images, you're going to lose those deepest, you're going to lose touch with those deepest desires. They're still going to be, be there, and perhaps through some sort of providential event, they'll be awakened again. But we shouldn't need providential events to make us aware of natural desires. We shouldn't need catastrophic providential events. Everything's under providence. Yeah. If I may, because that's kind of, again, that's kind of experience in my life is a little bit different. I mean, I can look at as much as this, I look at this thing as much as anyone else, but you know, I grew up as an only child. I am an only child. So I had a lot of time by myself, and I didn't have one of these things for a long time. So I was, I did have a situation where I'm in my room a lot by myself in silence and not because I did anything to get in trouble, it's just because that's how life was. Yeah. So for me, I guess the response I made to that was to really just close myself up in here, to daydream a lot. And so now, yeah. Okay. the kind of problem isn't necessarily that I'm scrolling on YouTube. Yeah. Doom scrolling all day, although there's sometimes where I can't do that. Yeah, so you're, you're the monk looking out the window. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Stop doing that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.